Blog Talk Radio. There is a watchman on the wall, bringing forth the written word of God to one and all. Are you getting ready? Will you stand or will you fall? Listen to the watchman on the wall. Listen to the watchman on the Rise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. A new day has dawned. All over the earth, men and women are arising. It's time for the sons of God to awake. It is a day of justice, recompense, Restoration, revival, and resurrection power. gentle and humble host. It is so good to be with you today. I want to begin the broadcast today by saying happy birthday to our dear friend and sister in the Lord, Callie. Callie, if you're there right now, happy birthday. If you hear this later, happy birthday. What a great day. What a great person you are. What a daughter of the great king you truly are. We're wishing you a very happy birthday. I'd sing, but we would lose most of our audience. So, We're just going to say happy birthday to you, and may all of those who know you uh, come into agreement to honor you and to bless you today and celebrate your birth upon this earth. You share something very special to my heart. Today would have been my sister Cheryl's birthday as well. She was born July 29th, 1961, so praise the Lord. Happy birthday. We want to start the broadcast that way. And anybody else out there having a birthday today, happy birthday to you. I know Kevin Hauger just celebrated his 37th wedding anniversary, and he testified last night. He doesn't know how she stayed with him so long. (laughs) Just kidding, Kevin. God bless you. Anyways, we have a little bit of fun like that. So um, I have the background screen today, what it is for a purpose and a reason. Um, And it's because of the context of our conversation today that I want to get into. And so I am going to speak for a little bit about the Feast of Tabernacles. And I was sharing with some people that are very interested in knowing about the Feast. Why do we celebrate the Feast? Isn't that a Jewish thing? Uh, Isn't that legalism? Isn't that under the Old Testament? 
um, you know, what is this that you guys are doing? It makes you cannot look a certain way. Well, what I would like to do is take a, a simple uh, fragment of our time today and walk through the scriptures with you. And it all begins on the fourth day of creation. You're not going to believe this, but it's true. I'm going to go into the Hebrew. I'm going to break it down. I'm going to show you that the feast of the Lord, which have been replaced by Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter and Halloween and all these little holidays that are out there in the world, how they have really exchanged the glory of the Lord's feast. Um, and if we could bring it back and see the glory in each one of these feasts, we would marvel and be celebrating all the church would, uh, both Jew and Gentile. So let's begin uh, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 14. And I would encourage you, if you have a pad of paper and a pen or a pencil, and you could take down some notes so you could cross-reference the scriptures uh, we are talking about the Feast of Tabernacles today, and today is July 29th, and the Feast of Tabernacles 2021 begins this year, September 20th, which is Monday when the sun sets. So you want to make sure that you arrive at the destination that God has called you to for the Feast of Tabernacles for Monday evening when the sun sets, the feast will begin. And we'll get more into what we're going to be doing as a host church for those that are going to come and participate in the Feast of Tabernacles. But for those of you who don't understand it, you're a little bit suspect about, you know, what is that? We're not under the law. Uh, the Bible says, don't worry about all these things. And we couldn't agree more. But this particular area of the Father's heart, the Feast of the Lord, they were with him in the very beginning of time before man was ever on the earth. Let's take a peek. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So we're going to concentrate on that particular verse. We'll read the rest of it as we go, but we're going to concentrate on verse 14. And one of the marvelous things about the book of Genesis, if you go back just a little bit earlier and you go to the very beginning of Genesis, uh, where we read uh, verse 3, Genesis 1-3, this is just a little mystery. Uh, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Now, uh, he called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So that first day of creation, where God said, let there be light, <clears throat> that was different than the fourth day of creation, as we're reading in Genesis 1.14. In Genesis 1.14, and God said, let there be lights. And now he's talking about the sun, the moon, and the stars. So on the first day of creation, there was an illumination. There was a light. I happen to believe that out of the belly or out of the bosom of the Father, when he said, let there be light, illumination, he, let, let there be Christ. And I believe that out of the bosom of the Father, Christ went forth, illuminating the darkness. And that, that's just the first day of creation. 
But when we get here to the fourth day of creation, and God said, let there be lights, and I want to just look at that word in the Hebrew. It's the ma'or. It means luminaries, okay? And it talks about a luminous body or luminary uh, as an element. Uh, it means brightness. It means cheerfulness, like a chandelier, like a chandelier, uh, a bright light. And so if you can imagine the heavens suddenly, as God spoke into existence, let there be lights that the sun, moon, and stars, as you're going to see in just a moment, appeared as a chandelier hanging over the earth. What an amazing picture when you stop and think about it. And so God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the actual day from the night and let them be for signs. So let the lights be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Okay, so in just a moment, we're going to see beyond the shadow of a doubt, he's talking about the sun, moon, and stars. But let's take a look at the word signs, because not only did the lights in the firmament above hang like a chandelier over the earth, giving brightness and light like the sun that lightens the earth. Hallelujah. It's so beautiful, right? So the chandelier is also a calendar. Understand that on the fourth day of creation, God created all these things in the heavens, but he also created them for what? Signs and seasons and for days and years. So that is definitely the calendar of the creator, God. So God created on the fourth day. Now, what were the signs is he referring to? Well, let them be for signs. And the word signs there is the oath or the oath. And what it means, and I'm going to go through all the Hebrew definition, it means a signal. So in other words, God put the sun, moon, and stars for signals. Who would they be signaling, right? Well, they would signal certain events. When you have a calendar and you mark a big X on the calendar for a future date, uh, it's signaling something that's going to happen, an event on that day. All right, so in God's calendar, he put the sun, moon, and stars, his calendar, uh, and he created them for signals or distinguishing marks or for a banner or for remembrance. Okay, this is the word for signs, the oath. Uh, also an omen, an omen, and also for warning. This is the Hebrew, for warnings. So in other words, when men on the earth will look up to the stars, and you'll notice when we get into this study a little bit that many of the wonderful men of God, uh, they were always directed to look at the sun, the moon, the stars. They, they knew something. Daniel was extraordinarily uh, you know, wise about these things. So anyways... It also goes on, the actual meaning of the word is a signal, uh, is as a flag, there's like a flag or a beacon or a monument. They also stand for monuments, omens, prodigies, evidence, okay? So we have all these definitions of what the purpose of the sun, moon, and stars were. Number one, to divide the day from the night, uh, to bring cheer and brightness on the earth so we're not all in the dark. And let them be for the signs, the oath that we just talked about. But here's the mystery. And for seasons. And for seasons. And in the Hebrew, that word seasons is the moed. 
or the Moed. Now watch the definition here. It's miraculous, quite frankly. The definition for Moed properly is, number one, an appointment, an appointment. So what do you normally mark your calendar for? Well, you mark your calendar for an appointment that you're going to have. Maybe it's a week from now. You put it on your calendar, and you mark it because you have an appointment with someone or something a week from now or a month from now. You put it on your calendar. So in God's calendar in heaven, he marked the sun, moon, and stars would be for appointments or for a fixed time, a fixed time or season, a time or a season, specifically, specifically a festival, a festival. Think about that. Also, conventionally, it speaks about they're there for a year, the Moed. It talks about, this is really important, an assembly. So we're going to put these all together, okay? An appointed fixed time for a festival where an assembly for a convened indefinite purpose, okay, so the assembly is a convening of the people for a uh, definite purpose. It talks about the place of meeting, the place of meeting, okay, and then it gets into the feast. It literally, in the Hebrew, refers to a set or solemn feast, appointed or due season, an appointed time. Now, when you put all that Hebrew definition together of the Moed, that God put the lights in the heaven, the sun, the moon, and the stars for seasons, or if you put it together so that there would be a appointed fixed time to gather together for a festival called the Feast of the Lord. So in other words, on the fourth day of creation, God had in his heart when he created his calendar that there would be the signs in the heavens and the seasons that would mark a definite point when God would gather his people together to celebrate his feast. It's exactly what the definition says. Now, when you study that word out, and you get into Exodus, and you get into Leviticus, and you get into, you know, the feast days, and it calls for the congregation and the, and the meetings, and it really goes in. It's the same meaning. My point to you who are listening that don't understand the Feast of the Lord, or particularly the Feast of Tabernacles that we'll be celebrating in less than two months now, is that this is God's appointed feast that he marked out before man was ever on the earth. So God had it in his heart, then when he put man on the earth, he would have man look to the stars, and when there was a particular alignment, they would know when that appointed time was to celebrate the Feast of the Lord. And this is amazing when you stop and think about when Jesus was born. You know, when he was born, there was a star over Bethlehem. And the Magi, you remember the story, they spent months on the road following that star because they knew it meant something. It was a signal to them. It was for a sign and a season. What was the signal? What was the sign that Messiah was being born in Bethlehem? So they were looking to the stars. And many of the Magi had been trained up by Daniel. Daniel was the master Magi, if you will. He taught the secrets of God to them 
when it referred to the sun, moon, and stars. Abraham looked to the stars. God always told him, look to the stars. And many other examples we have in Scripture about God's calendar. Number one, the lights hang like a chandelier, probably the most beautiful chandelier to the house called planet Earth. And it was so gorgeous. And then within the context of that chandelier, there were these galaxies or these sun, moon, stars, these signs and for seasons. Now, let's go a little bit deeper in Genesis chapter 1, verse 15, just to get the context. It says, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. So these lights that God said, let there be lights, he also was saying that they would, they would serve as a calendar, but they would also be to bring light upon the earth, which means brightness and cheer and awakening and illumination. And that's what the sun does. I mean, it's just beautiful. Now, verse 16, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day. We know that as the sun and the lesser light to rule the night. We know that as the moon, and he made the stars also. So you have the sun, the moon, the stars, fourth day of creation, with an intentional thought that they would serve as signs and seasons for omens and warnings and signals, and they would also serve for times of gathering together to celebrate the feast of the Lord. It's in the definition itself. So keep that in mind. And verse 17, it says, And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. All right, so let's begin right there. The feast of the Lord existed in God's heart, mind, and desire before man ever walked on the face of the earth. So, when you get to Genesis uh, chapter 3, let's just take a peek at it real quick. Let's take a peek at it. I'm pretty sure that's where I want to be here. So, I want you to notice something. It says that, um, oh boy, I think we want to go to chapter 4. Do we want to go to chapter 4? Yeah. So let's go to Genesis chapter 4. Now man is on the earth. Okay, and we just need to use a little bit of our imagination here. All right, so we know on the fourth day of creation what God intended. Now man, on the sixth day of creation, exists. Adam and Mrs. Adam. God places them in a garden to till the land, gives them everything that we will ever need. Okay, from an economy to... All that God had intended for mankind, we read that in Genesis chapter 2. So however long Adam and Mrs. Adam were in the garden, we know that they were told to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, my opinion, which really doesn't matter, but my thought about these things after searching this out for 39 years, is I believe that Adam and Mrs. Adam procreated in the Garden of Eden and produced the human race. I believe that. And I believe that when they sinned, that not only did Adam and Mrs. Adam get thrust out of the garden, but the Adam race or the race of Adam, the human race of Adam, they all were scattered. 
I don't believe that Adam and Mrs. Adam were in the garden all that time with a command to procreate, and they never did. So that's where later on when Cain flees to a city and marries a woman, he asks, well, where did she come from? Probably in the scattering, okay, from the Garden of Eden. But that doesn't matter. None of that really matters. What we know is if, in fact, they were in the garden, okay, and before the fall and before sin, if Adam and Mrs. Adam were there and they were producing offspring or they were by themselves, they were very much aware of the, uh, the calendar of God in the heavens. And I would imagine that they were celebrating these feasts of the Lord. And if there was a race of Adam in the garden, they were all doing it and they were bringing their offerings and so on and so forth. Now, we don't have any evidence of that, but what we do have, let's fast forward to the fall when Adam and Mrs. Adam fell and if there was a, a race, the, uh, the Adamic race with them, when they were cast out of the garden, they were scattered. But the story begins in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where now after the fall, Adam knew Eve. In other words, they intercoursed and they produced. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bore his brother, Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. All right, so what we find after the fall, and who knows, if there was an Adamic race that was scattered to the ends of the earth in, in that world at that time, all right, we'll figure that out along the way. But we do know that two sons were born to Adam and Mrs. Adam, Cain and Abel, that we know. But what is the first thing that the Bible says was going on. Well, in verse 3, it says, and it came, excuse me, and in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Hmm. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. So the first thing you ask yourself, well, why are they bringing an offering? This is the first time an offering was ever even mentioned. The word offering is the minka, and what it means is a tribute offering, a present, a gift, an offering to God, okay? So somewhere along the way, it also means to bestow a donation, euphemistically tribute, sacrificial offering, a gift, okay, and a, a present, and a sacrifice. So we know now that the Bible says that Cain and Abel brought offerings. Somebody told them to do that, most likely Adam, who had the instructions in the garden, you know that when they were in the garden, the download, they walked with God in the cool of the day. And what do you think they were talking about? God was talking to Adam and most likely Mrs. Adam for some time, communicating his heart with them, explaining creation, looking at things. Their minds were so unspoiled, the, the, the revelation and the communication must have been beyond anything we've ever imagined. And so now that the fall came, they still are imparting to their sons, Cain and Abel, the desired purpose of God for them to gather at a certain time to bring offerings 
Now, offerings are always associated in Scripture predominantly with the Feast of the Lord. That's why in Passover or in, uh, if you begin the year in God's calendar, the first day of the first month of, the, of a new year is in the spring. And so when you get to the 14th day of the first month in the economy of God, that is Passover. And the Passover offering is one of the biggest offerings that people could give to the Lord. Now, when you go back to the offerings, they were always foreshadowing what was to come. And you can imagine that they were being taught that in the future, Messiah would come, a Savior would come. And so they began celebrating the Feast of the Lord all the way back after the fall, looking for a Redeemer and looking for redemption. And then by the time you get to Moses and the Mosaic Law, God gives them very specific instructions on, on how to celebrate the Feast of Passover. And it gets very intense. It goes from the day of Passover, and then the next day begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is for seven days. And the next day, which would have been the third day of the beginning of the feast, was the Feast of First Fruits. So you have these three feasts in the beginning of the year within the first three days, Passover, the beginning of Unleavened Bread, which is a seven-day feast, and then on the third day, first fruits. And Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, being the first fruits of the resurrection. So there's an incredible story in all of that. But in the economy of God, when you read about how they were to celebrate the feast of Passover at the beginning of the year, they were to bring what was known as a Passover offering. And that offering was so important that in the book of Numbers, there were some people that missed the feast and they weren't able to get their offering to the Lord. So they asked Moses, what do we do? And Moses said, I'll pray. And then God said, what? Tell them to celebrate the feast of Passover in the second month on the 14th day of the month. In other words, he gave them a second chance. They're concerned they didn't get their offering in. Read the story, Numbers chapter 9. So why was that offering so important? Because in the economy of God, it set the stage for that whole year agriculturally, that God would send the rain and God would send the blessing upon their seed and upon their crops. And then all of a sudden, 50 days later, another feast would appear, the Feast of Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks, 49 days, the 50th day. They would bring another offering to the Lord because they would have the first fruits of that 50-day-ago sowing. Now they're harvesting it, so they give the Lord another offering then for the next four months, they would reap their harvest. And four months, they would be gathering in. They would be selling at the market. They would be storing in the barn. And the blessing came upon their four months of harvesting because of their initial offerings. Then after four months, the fall feast would begin. It would begin with the Feast of Trumpets, known as Rosh Hashanah. And the Feast of Trumpets would be a trumpet blast to the people that the fall feast is on the way. Ten days later, later they would have the Feast of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. So you begin the year with Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. Fifty days later, you had Shavuot. Then four months later, you had the fifth feast, which is trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. Ten days later, you had the Feast of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and then four days after that, on the 14th or 15th day of the seventh month, Tishri, the Feast of Tabernacles. And then the offerings that they were to bring 
during the fall feasts were incredible. So the idea was four months of reaping major harvest because the blessing of the Lord is on them for their obedience and for their offerings. And then after four months, they paid off their bills. Everything was stored. They had plenty to give. And they would all come with the healthiest, best offering they could give to God for all the good things that he had done for them. That's all in scripture. So my point is, the offerings are often associated with the feast of the Lord. Malachi chapter 3, uh, give your, uh, you know, bring all the tithes and the offerings into my house, and I see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing you cannot contain. So there was an economy with the feast of the Lord. What's the point? All the way back to Cain and Abel. All the way back to Cain and Abel. What God had originated on the fourth day of creation was in motion. We believe that it was in motion in the garden in, among the, the race of Adam, but the fall infected the entire race. They were all cast out. But then we pick up the story and see the first thing spoken of by Cain and Abel is they gave offerings. Now, Cain did not give a proper offering. He didn't give his very best. He didn't give the first fruits. He gave God something that was not respected. But Abel gave the firstlings, the choice, the fat of his flock, the best that he had to the Lord. So you tie that all in, then you get into all the scriptures in Exodus and Leviticus about the feast of the Lord. And then by the time you hit the New Testament, they're called the Jews' feast, but they're really not the Jews' feast. They are the Lord's feast that he gave to the Jews. But then we think in the New Testament somehow that well, the feasts don't exist anymore, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. And I totally agree, by the way, he is. He is the Redeemer that was in the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits. Holy Spirit is the second Feast of Shavuot, Pentecost, 50 days later, just like the Old Testament Feast. And the Feast of Tabernacles is the only feast that has yet to be fulfilled. And so we go from year to year remembering Passover. They were looking forward to fulfillment. We are looking back to what was done. And by celebrating the feast and, and coming together and honoring the Lord year by year in these feasts, Passover has been fulfilled. Pentecost has been fulfilled. But when we get to the fall feast, Tabernacles has not yet been fulfilled. The true meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. So, why are we saying these things? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you go all the way to the New Testament, and what I find striking about this is that the Apostle Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, if anybody knew about the Feast of the Lord, it was the Apostle Paul. I mean, think about it. He was an Israelite. He was from the tribe of uh, Benjamin, the stock of Abraham. I mean, he was blameless concerning the law, the Torah. He knew the instructions of the feast of the Lord. So now he's a spiritual father, an apostle to a Gentile church that probably had Jewish people in it as well. And he's talking to them about the feast of the Lord. And here's what he says. And he's dealing, and I want you to see the spiritual part of the feast, okay? Not just the dogma 
or the Old Testament outward expression. In the New Testament, every one of the feasts of the Lord have an inward expression. It is intrinsic value. It is something that adds to our journey, grows us up in the Spirit, and enables us to walk in the Spirit in the economy of God. Here's what I'm saying. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a major problem in the church of Corinth. And here's the story. It says in verse 1, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily is absent in body, but present in spirit have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, remember that phrase there, when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now watch what Paul does with this sin issue. He said, your glorying is not good. So here was that church at Corinth, and they were hanging from chandeliers. They were all about the gifts. They had the gifts flowing. I mean, they were shamalama ding-donging all over the place, right? And they were flowing and going. And so it was all going on. And they were ignoring the character issue. They were ignoring the sin issue. So Paul's addressing it, and he says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not, now watch how he applies the feast here. Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's talking about leaven. He's talking about the feast of unleavened bread. Watch how he employs this now. He said, purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. So he's talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, not the external part of it. He's talking about the people becoming unleavened in their hearts, in their souls. And then he goes on and he clarifies it. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So now he's bringing in Christ as the Passover Lamb of God. So he's employing the Passover. He's employing the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then he says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what did the Apostle Paul, who knew all about the battle between law and grace, I mean, Paul knew that the grace of God in the New Covenant excelled everything of the Old Testament, but yet he tells the church at Corinth, keep the feast. Did Paul know that the feast of the Lord were connected to God's heart on the fourth day of creation? Did he know that even though we were in a New Covenant, that there were yet celebrations and appointed times for the gathering together of the people of God, not only the Jew, but the Gentiles as well? Absolutely. He knew it. 
So the Apostle Paul does not ixnay the Feast of the Lord. He doesn't do away with the Feast of the Lord. He's going to something that existed before the law. There were a number of things that existed in the economy of God before the law. You know, three of them right off top. Number one, the Feast of the Lord existed before there was a Mosaic law. The Sabbath of the Lord, the Sabbath was in operation before the Mosaic law. And then, of course, tithes and offerings. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek before Moses ever showed up on the scene hundreds of years earlier. So tithes, we saw offerings with Cain and Abel, tithes and offerings, Sabbath days and feast days all existed in the economy of God before there was a Mosaic law. In the Mosaic law, these things were there, and then they had instructions, and they really put a lot into it. But now in the New Testament, Paul goes into not an outward show of keeping the feast, but now let's personalize the true meaning of the feast of the Lord. For example, when we talk about Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, what we're talking about, why we celebrate it, is because of the blood of Yeshua that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, that's intrinsic. That has inward value. That means something to me, that my conscience is cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. My sins are forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. Deliverance happens because of the blood of the Lamb. And that grace and that mercy and that forgiveness and that blood, that atonement, that sacrifice, helps me to become unleavened without any sin or malice or insincerity in my heart. So this means something. Even for a New Testament church 2,000 years down the road, the Feast of Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, it is all intrinsic in its value to our lives. Obviously, the fourth feast, the second major feast, Pentecost or Shavuot, we know it as Pentecost in the New Testament in the book of Acts, that's all about the Holy Spirit. Now, check this out. Passover is all about Jesus, the Son of God. Pentecost is all about the Holy Spirit. So what do you think tabernacles would be all about? Yes, the Father. The work of the Son of God in Passover, the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, does the Holy Spirit have any intrinsic value for your life? The Holy Spirit is in you forever to empower you, to guide you, to teach you, to give you revelation and tell you things to come and to inspire you and encourage you to be the paraclete that stands by you, that walks with you forever. He is giving all the kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, the character of God is in the Holy Spirit. So that has intrinsic eternal value for you. So that's why we celebrate that feast. But tabernacles is all about the gathering. It's called the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Booths. It's the Feast of Sukkot. It's the feast that represents the bride and the bridegroom. It is the consummation of the ages. It is the marriage of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, to the ecclesia, the church, the bride. It is the Father gathering together into his heart all of his sons and daughters. You see, the work of the Son on the cross and the work of the Spirit building in us the eternal habitation of God. So the work of the Son and the Spirit prepare us for an encounter with the Father. 
We have been reconciled to the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit empowers us and gets us cleaned up so that when we come to the Father, we will be prepared to meet him. So all these great feasts have such intrinsic value, and we have ignored them. We have have exchanged them for Christmas and Easter and all these things. And I just want to encourage you that we're not going back under the law of Moses. Let me give you another great scripture out of Zechariah chapter 14. And I just wanted to show you that just because we're a New Testament church does not mean we are to bail out on the things that belong to God from the fourth day of creation and on. So now let's go to Zechariah 14. Zechariah chapter 14. And here's what we read. Now, this whole chapter, everybody will tell you, has to do with the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. This is the chapter that talks about the destruction upon all the nations that fight against Israel. This is, this is a total millennial kingdom passage of Scripture in Zechariah 14. And you need to study that, search it out, ask your pastor questions, do all of that. But I'm going to pick it up in verse 16. Verse 16. This is during the millennium, okay? And here's what it says. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations, whoever's left of all the nations, which came against Jerusalem, all right? So you've got to find a time when, when's all the, when are all the nations going to come up against Jerusalem? And those that are left or those who survive that came up against Jerusalem, all that are left shall even go up from year to year to worship the king. In other words, all the nations that fought against Jerusalem that survived, that are going to be alive during the millennial reign, they're going to go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Wow. Listen to this in verse 17. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth. That means all the families of the earth during the millennium will go up to worship the king from year to year. And whoever will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, Even upon them shall be no rain. Wow. Even during the millennium, there's punishments for those who won't obey. No wonder why at the end of a thousand years, the devil's going to be able to gather the armies, uh, you know, the the Gog-Magog army thing in Revelation 20. It tells us all about it. We always wondered how could after a thousand years of of Christ's righteous rule, can the devil come back so easily and gather people against Jerusalem again? Well, it's because there will be rebellion during the thousand years. There will be resistance. People will not cooperate altogether. I don't understand if it's what it says. And then they'll have no rain. Now listen to verse 18. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, so they already don't have the rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen 
that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. So even the heathen nations that survived the Holocaust of the second coming of the Lord Jesus in Revelation 19, okay, the one he comes to set up his kingdom where he'll rule in Jerusalem, right? Well, if they don't come up, they're going to get the plague for not coming up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Wow. Now, there's a little counterpart to this, and it's all the way over in Revelation chapter 21. So in Revelation chapter 21, you kind of get a a feel for what was going on in Revelation or uh, Zechariah 14. And I just want to briefly touch on it. And it says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. See if you see the kind of the same language. In verse 23, it says in Revelation 21, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. Now watch this. So the Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the Lamb is the light thereof, okay? And the nations, this is verse 24, and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. So there's the kings of the earth. They're going to bring their glory and honor into it, into Jerusalem. And the gates of it, the city, shall not be shut at all by day. Watch now. For there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles Neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So that means there are going to be nations that survive, and they are called to bring their glory and honor into the new Jerusalem to worship the king during the Feast of Tabernacles, and those who don't will not enter into it. It says those that work in abomination, those that are defiled, they will not, or make a lie, they will not go in. Wow. No wonder why. We're going to be ruling and reigning for a thousand years. Have you ever wondered, who are we going to be ruling and reigning over? Well, during the millennium, we'll be ruling over the surviving nations. They will be procreating. There will be nations all over the world, just like there are now. But in Jerusalem, the king of glory shall be. You and I will be ruling and reigning in Jerusalem with glorified bodies, So we're going to rule and reign for a thousand years in glorified bodies that never die. That's part of our inheritance as the saints of God in resurrected bodies. Hallelujah. We will rule and reign. And the nations will bring their glory and honor into it. And those who don't come up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles to worship the king, they're going to have no reign. And then they'll get the plague. They'll be punished. And nobody undefiled will enter in. So the Feast of Tabernacles is in the heart of the Father and definitely a part of the economy and the kingdom of God Almighty. And it all began on the fourth day of creation. It all began on the fourth day of creation. 
So now we come to 2021. Now listen carefully. We now come to the year 2021. In the Hebrew calendar, it is the year 5781. All right? We are in the year 5781. And I go by the Bible, not by the rabbis. The rabbis have made mistakes before they even killed Jesus. So I don't trust the rabbis as much as I do the revealed word of God. The revealed word of God says that a new year begins on the first day of the first month of a new year. And that was the month Abib, or we know it as Nisan, around March or April. And the new year begins the following spring on the first day of the first, first month. So I don't go into the civil calendar conversation about seventh month being the first month. I don't go there. I understand it. It's like the year begins for children going to school in September. That's the beginning of the year for them. But it's really the ninth month in the Gregorian calendar. So if we go by God's calendar, 5781 began back in April or March, whenever it was this last year. And it will continue until the spring of next year, 5781. In the Hebrew, you could search this out if you go to the Hebrew concordance, and you type in the number 5781, it brings you to a definition. It's the muaka, the muaka. And there's some other root words connected to it. The main meaning of the Hebrew number 5781 is pack your bags, affliction, pressure, distress. Now, in 2020, which would have been the year 5780, now you know in 2020, we had the whole coronavirus debacle thing, right? And the whole world shut down, right? There was somebody counseling or doing something. If you study the word, the definition for the number 5780 in the Hebrew, it is the year of counsel. It means to counsel. Now, in Psalm chapter 2, the Bible says that the kings of the earth, the rulers of the world, counsel together. They gather together and take counsel on how to break the bands and the cords of the anointed one of, of and, and, and the anointed ones in the earth. Psalm chapter two literally says the word they gather together to take counsel. In 2020, the year 5780, the meaning of the 5780 was to take counsel. Well the rulers of the world took counsel, they shut down the world so that they can implement the final components for their new world order system that's soon to come to pass. There are a few things that have to be accomplished. So that 5780, they took counsel. And if you go back all the way to 5777, you'll see everything that was written in Hebrew definition actually transpired in the earth. It's an amazing picture. But 5781, to pack your bags, pressure, distress, anguish, affliction, the, that number tells us. This is the time that the people will come out of her, my people, and they will be going into the wilderness. They're going to be going into their Goshens. I mean, if the pattern fits, there it is. I, the number 5782 is the time to open your eyes, wake up, watch. 
my God. So I don't remember how or the reason why I got there. All I know is that we are living right now in a very intense moment in the history of the world. There are people that are going to be forced to take vaccinations, perhaps, in other places around the world. And remember, the unique thing about this crisis, this birth pang, is that it's happening simultaneously around the world at the same time. This is not an isolated event over there at that time. This is a global pang, okay? And in the midst of this global pang, this pandemic, this pandemic, call it whatever you want, this time of governmental control, this time of controlling the people, getting them out of the way, silencing the church, no singing, no speaking, don't gather. And they're going to bring it back again, right? This is all happening again. Because they have to finalize what they did in 2020. Again, they shut everything down, got everybody out of the way, go watch Netflix. We're going to implement the final components to our new world order. That's going to enslave the human race. And we're going to give that mark, right, so that people can't buy or sell within it. This is what's coming. What is God doing in the midst of all of this? The strategy of God? I know what the world is doing. I know where it's going. I know what's coming, and so do you. And there's no putting the brakes on it. There's no stopping it. There's no turning it away. It's coming. The new world order, great tribulation, is coming. And 5781 carries that, that whole note of great tribulation. Pack your bags. Pressure, anguish, distress, right? So it's all there. It's coming. Don't get caught in the snare. So what is the strategy of God? Gather together. The feast day is coming. Come up to celebrate the king for the Feast of Tabernacles and the strategy of God to those who honor the Lord and come up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, God will honor them. And we will bring our offerings to the Lord. It's a present, it's a gift to him. And what a better person to give our gifts to than God himself to give thanks and offering. And we don't want to give him a cheap offering. We want to give him the very best because that's what he deserves. Then what does God do with the offerings? He gives them to the priests, the ministers of the altar. That's the economy of God for how things work on earth. Does God need our bulls and goats? Does God need our money or gold and silver? Does God need anything from us? No. What he desires is that we bring offerings with a pure heart of cheerful giving, the very best that we have. That's how we honor him. But he shares, and it's in the scripture, all the offerings with the priests of the altar. So tithes and offerings belong to the ministers of the altar, those who labor in the word of God. So this is the economy of heaven on earth, if we would ever get it right. So there's no mystery. There's no con job. There's no make-believe. The feast are the Lord's, the offerings, the tithes, all of them go directly to the priests. So there's no mystery in it. It's God's way of taking care of the minister's but the people should be reaping a massive harvest for honoring him throughout the year. And it just works out perfect. There's no, no manipulation necessary. But there's more to it than just that. 
When the people of God gather together, particularly in the year 5781, what is the world going to look like a month and a half from now? What is the world going to look like? Is it possible that God will gather people together for his feast and strategically, number one, as we present our offerings to the Lord, as we give ourselves to the Lord, present our bodies a living sacrifice and go and do all, all that he said, I am confident and have witnessed for over 30 years that God shows up in the feast. In the Gospel of John, during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Lord Jesus showed up. He went up in secret, and then he revealed himself about halfway through the feast. It is a seven-day feast, and it's actually an eight-day feast, and the Lord showed up. And the Lord always shows up, his presence. And what he does as his presence draws near to the congregation that's honoring him, that are honoring him with their coming and their giving of him the gifts, he begins to strategically impart to the souls that are there the necessary things they'll need for the days that lie ahead. Wisdom will be imparted, revelation, knowledge, understanding of what God is doing. It is as though God invites us to come and celebrate him, but then God celebrates us. And God in Zephaniah chapter 3 will sing over us, and God will bless us. And so it's an exchange. It's a feast of tabernacles where God intervenes with his people. He intimates with his people. He connects with them. He's there with them. And, and his presence and revelation and wisdom and all the glory and the grace of God is shared with the people. And so strategically, God is encouraging, doing an intrinsic work. He's downloading, he's imparting, he's filling up. He's doing amazing things so that when people are done with the feast, they go back. They are going back with it, a deposit. But it's also possible that during one of these feast days or these years of the Feast of Tabernacles, it's always possible that God is gathering his people to a place when things really go south electromagnetic pulse, darkening of the earth, nuclear war, uh, the crushing uh, progressive demonic rioting and invasion and violence that'll just break loose everywhere, internal revolution, civil war. Whatever it is, God will have his people at the right place at the right time doing the right thing with the right people right now. Strategy connected to the feast. And so it all began on the fourth day of creation. And we are going to host it September 20th, Monday evening when the sun sets, we'll be gathering in Bella Vista. And we will be celebrating Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and then we'll call it a feast. And what does God have planned? What is his theme for us? I know what he put in my heart. You know, I was with our sisters, and we were, we were in a prayer meeting on Monday night, and it came through. The theme that God wants this year is deliverance and recovery. Deliverance and recovery. So it tells me when God's people gather, there's going to be deliverance taking place in their lives, maybe even beyond their comprehension to understand it, and a recovering of all things that has been lost or stolen. And if you have faith and you can believe with a childlike faith and step into what God is doing, 
you're going to have an amazing feast. We're hosting it. We're excited about hosting it. And that's the story. Praise the Lord. And that's it. That's all I wanted to say today. And I just um, going to stop right here and say good morning to Eddie Wells. Good morning, brother Eddie. God bless you. I'll never forget your face, man, seeing you on that plane. God bless you. Uh, Kevin Hauger was with the, let's see, Pastor V, stick with the day job, but keep trying the comedy stick. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate that. You mean the woo, <laughs> the background. Diane, Kenan, good morning. Have a blessed day. Diane, Ken, safe journeys to you in your traveling. I've been praying for you already this morning, along with Ray and Lori. They're out there traveling. Blessings and Godspeed on them. Cindy Messman is with us. Good morning, Pastor Vincent. Blessings. Thank you. Uh, I notice I'm not getting a whole bunch of applause for the background, but I understand. Believe, believe me. Charlotte Gotch, good morning, everyone. Sienna Oberhofer, good to see you, Sienna. Uh, blessings, Pastor. Always a good word. Thank you so much. God bless you. Great meal yesterday, by the way. Appreciate it deeply. Uh, Joyce Young, good morning. Vanessa KM, Shalom Pastor. Shirley Woosley, good morning. Sean Woodson, hello, Brother Vincent and siblings in Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be unto you. Good morning to all of you. God bless you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. David Ellison, good morning. Hello, Brother Dave. Kevin Honeycutt. Wait a second. That's not Pastor Kevin Honeycutt, is it? Good morning, man of God. Listening in my wood shop. Hey, where have you been? I've been waiting to hear from you for almost a whole year. We need to talk if you're interested. Give me a shout. I'll look forward to talking with you, brother. God bless you. Uh, uh, Joyce, looking forward to the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm so glad. So that's it today. Now, look, I cut the numbers down. About a third of the people are not on that they usually are because we're talking about something other than the end of the world and all this stuff that's going on. We're talking about something more rich that maybe only a few will ever really resonate with and get it, okay? But you should get it. You should get ready. You should tell your boss, I'm gone for a week, September 20th to September 27th or 8th, boss. I'm going to celebrate the Feast of the Lord. And the time has come. It's in the economy of heaven. And I want to get all that I can from the Lord, and I want to bring to the Lord my offering to the Lord. And I want to participate in this great feast. Now, what's going to happen? Special guest speakers. I'll be meeting with another pastor today, one of my favorite brothers, Pastor Ken Maddox, contacted me yesterday. He's going to be bringing his worship team, Lord willing, and the word of God that's so deep and rich in his heart. Brother David and Victoria Obenauer will be coming out also to celebrate the feast and speaking at the feast uh, Pastor Jeff Bass and his wife, Dee, possibly will be coming. We're waiting to hear from them. It may be, just by what I just saw with Pastor Kevin Honeycutt, maybe our brother will be back again this year. I don't know. We'll see. But they, these are the things that we're doing. And then, of course, we will be ministering every day. Pastor Ken Wagner, Pastor Michael Villarin, even Brother Daryl Wagner said, I want to be in the list. I got a word to share this year. So what we do, it's so simple. We just gather together, whoever shows up. And then every day, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday this year, we'll be up on our property in the ark. We'll have a tent up there. After the praise and worship, after the word of God, we'll have a lunch, and people will have a great time doing whatever they love to do. 
We'll have worship musicians this year. Uh, I call them the two tones right now. That's Brother Ray and Brother Mark are going to be worshiping. And then there's some friends coming from the Catholic Church. Uh, oh, I'm forgetting names right now, but they're, we're going to have an incredible feast. Time to break away from building the bricks of the Egyptian empire. Time to come and see what God is doing and get a download. And these ministers, they, they don't, they're just going to bring the word of God that's on the inside of them to impart. And as they're spirit-led, we will be spirit-filled more and more. I guarantee it. Uh, Kevin says, I'm coming. Whoa! Praise the Lord. All right. Kevin Honeycutt is coming to the Feast of Tabernacles, and hopefully with his wonderful and beautiful family this year as well. All right, Kevin, we're going to talk about it. So we got, we got the big guns are out now, folks. The big guns are coming. Praise the Lord. What a time. We're going to join together in the love of God and the love of Christ. It's been a year, and we get to do it again. Get the word out all over this country. we got friends in other countries. Daniel Seckham, I asked him if he's ready to travel. If he is, we're going to bring him again. If he can't because of this thing, we'll see. Whatever the case is, make it a priority in your life to get somewhere to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? And we were going to expect something beautiful and glorious from the Lord. Hallelujah. Dean Smith is with us today. Good morning. Blessings. Thank you, Dean. Blessings to you. Dean, we have a lot of work to do in that garage to get it all wept out, and we're waiting for Brother Dave is going to be coming here and helping us do some stuff. So we're getting the land ready. Folks, if you only knew what we were doing to get the land ready for the Feast of Tabernacles so that our Father will be honored, you wouldn't believe it, man. It is going well. And then Pastor Dave is coming down with his truck. He's going to help us get some other things done in, the, in, in, in parts of that place. It's going to be incredible. Can't wait. And Laquita is saying, can't wait for tabernacles. I can't either. And Callie, if you're late in the hearing, remember, happy birthday to you. And that's it. I think uh, this was kind of a short and sweet, just a little offering today to get you thinking. Maybe you want to share this video with your friends and family that don't understand why we celebrate the feast. Maybe this will help them. And uh, that's it. I got some work to do today. Uh, Brother Ken and I eventually are going to start painting and putting some tile on a floor, and we've never done it before, the tile thing, so it's got to work out. We have to ask for God's grace, and uh, you're welcome, Callie, and truly happy birthday to you. Have a blessed day, and to everybody out there, have a super blessed day. We'll see you tomorrow with bells on and probably a new back screen. Amen. Have a blessed day. Right now on Omega Radio. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there's a roundtable discussion. You don't want to miss it. Patricia Joy Xavier, out of her book, Deliverance, the Christian Bill of Rights.